Welcome to Forests, Folklore, and Fantasy. My name is Kelly Rice, but I write and publish under my initials, K.M. Rice. You are most welcome here, and thank you so very much for joining me from wherever you happen to be in the world. Today, I would like to give you an overview of a holiday you may have never heard of before called Imbolc or St. Bridget's Day. Before I get into the subject matter, however, I would like to open by reading you a piece that I recently wrote that encapsulates late winter and early spring for me where I live. I take the gift of the weak sun, a pale whisper across freckle and poor, welcomed by chickadee and wren, titmouse and jay, who sing above the leaves disturbed by the towhee brave foraging amidst this respite from winter's fray. Their songs tell me of the changing light, as surely as the dried grass sweetened air of the day's delights. Messages abound for all to receive, if one just remembers to sit and breathe. Imbolc, or St. Brigid's Day, also sometimes known as the Feast of St. Brigid, is largely considered to mark the very, very, very beginning of spring. In our modern calendar, it is assigned a specific date, and that is February 1st, and observations often begin the evening before. However, it is likely a very old holiday, a very old celebration, and the people of Ireland who would have been marking this holiday, in fact, the Gaelic people in general, so that would include the Isle of Man and Scotland, would not have necessarily been looking at a calendar as to when to celebrate this this holiday. Um, so they had different signs that they looked for in nature. The biggest sign, other than the flowering of local plants and the changes that one could observe in their immediate landscape, would be the first arrival of lambs. So by and large, in bulk marks the beginning of the lambing season and as such is very much tied to the plethora of beautiful Irish customs that celebrate the agricultural year. And I should say, it's not only Ireland that has customs that celebrate the agricultural year in such a way, but Ireland and Scotland have a stronger record of these customs for us to 
read about and engage with than other parts of Europe. So there are four festivals that are considered to be Celtic fire festivals, and they all occur on now, again, that we have a set calendar, on the first of a month. So Imbolc would be the very first, by our reckoning, of these fire festivals. The next would be the 1st of May, which is also known as Beltane and still survives as May Day. Following that would be a holiday in Ireland known in the past as Lunasa. It's actually the Irish word, Irish Gaelic word for the month of August. Um, and that holiday is not as extant anymore. It's not really as celebrated anymore. And that marked the beginning of the harvest. And then we have Samhain, which would be November 1st, which survives in many ways as Halloween. So Imbolc, as we know it, marks the midway point between the winter solstice and the vernal equinox, or the spring equinox. It is meant to symbolize the beginning of the demise of winter. Um, some traditions see it as a feast to celebrate the last night of winter. I tend to view it as a holiday of promise, a holiday of reassurance, that most of these customs revolve around the reassurance of food security and that the time of scarcity and wanting that and rationing that people experience and and people would have experienced to some extent throughout the calendar year or throughout the agricultural year in the not so distant past um but winter exacerbated all resources and food stores so this was a time when people had the promise that more was to come more food was to come and so as the sheep began to lamb, it was very reassuring because people understood that we're not going to go without. There's going to be milk and we're going to have mutton and we're going to have wool for our clothing and the wheel of the seasons is going to continue to turn. Those of you listening who are familiar with the concept of the Wheel of the Year, either through the Wiccan faith or through familiarity just by moving in neo-pagan circles or maybe identifying as neo-pagan, will, of course, know what Imbolc is. But to those of you who don't know, I will offer a brief explanation of the Wheel of the Year here, and if you want a deeper um, explanation, I do have a free recording available on my website that you can go check out, and I'll put the link in the show notes. So the Wheel of the Year is a very recent representation of the agricultural year and the seasonal transitions that we go through. It's an amalgamation of many different European cultures and customs, 
um, that are all pre-Christian in nature. Several of them have been Christianized, but the the point of the Wheel of the Year is to celebrate uh, an Earth-centered form of being. The Wheel of the Year is sacred to Wiccans and is part of their religion and their spirituality, but it is also an incredibly accessible representation of the changing seasons that is very helpful to not only people who are Wiccan, but people who are just curious and wanting to feel more connected with the earth and the changing seasons. And there are eight holidays on the Wheel of the Year. I just gave you four of them, the four Celtic fire festivals. And then there are the two solstices, so the winter solstice and the summer solstice, known as Yule and Letha. And then there are the two equinoxes, so the vernal equinox, or Ostara, and the autumnal equinox, or Mabon. And I will say from the point of view who, of someone who's very entrenched in folklore and history, there is much more you can delve into by exploring the four Celtic fire festivals, just because we have so much more documentation of them. And they all survive in some way in their uh, in their cultures, in the, um, the places of the world where they were once practiced. Uh, I will give you an example of that. I am recording this in the early days of 2024, and it was just last year, in 2023, that Imbolc and Slash St. Bridget's Day became a public holiday in ERA, or Ireland. Uh, so it is a nationally recognized public holiday. Bridget herself, most historians and folklorists agree, was likely a very ancient deity, strongly associated with the earth. Um, often she is viewed as a personification of the gifts that the earth can give us, in terms, especially in terms of Imbolc and how Bridget is celebrated at Imbolc. Um, it is like the the bounty and the nurturing motherly aspect of the earth. She is very closely associated associated with cattle uh, and with milk and with fertility. All of these things also are very closely tied to how we tend to view the spring. Um, so, most of the folk customs involving Bridget, and I should say St. Bridget, because most of the historical record that documented these customs is actually to do with St. Bridget rather than the figure we believe to be the goddess Bridget. Um, most of them have to do with welcoming the spring and preparing for the start of the sowing season. There are a lot of people who will present information like this as if it is solid fact when, in fact, no pun intended, but in fact, we don't 100% know 
who Bridget was, why sometimes she's portrayed as a triple goddess, why sometimes she's not portrayed as a triple goddess. Um, there's a lot of evidence that indicates that she is likely proto-Indo-European, so she probably migrated across the European continent. Well, I'm acting like she was walking. Um, I don't know if Bridget herself ever had an embodied form and like walked around in Europe, but the the ancient peoples of Europe, like the Indo-European peoples and Proto-Indo-European peoples, probably brought the concept of this goddess with them, and then when they eventually populated the British Isles and Ireland and the Isle of Man, uh, this concept of this goddess remained. Uh, I always want to caution people to never think that something of something is static. All of these ideas, all of these gods and goddesses are fluid. The only time they get stagnant is when they're written down. Even though I'm sitting here nerding out being like, wow, I want to see what's documented. I stick to the documented research. I also want to temper that with the fact that uh, this, do quote, documented research was recorded, uh, a recording of what was largely an oral custom and oral customs that had great variations, not only across era, but across location and indeed from family to family. So when I'm saying that Bridget is likely Proto-Indo-European, that's coming at it from a linguistic sense and just from our very nebulous understanding of how ancient European peoples were migrating and where they ended up and what customs were brought with them. Brie in Bridget, most scholars think, was probably not part of someone's name. It still survives in names like Brian and Brianna, they think that it was possibly a title or um, a prefix given to, I don't know if I'm using that word properly, but like a, a, a prefix or a title given to a person of great honor and reverence, and that as that context was lost, it's possible that it then started being used as a name. Um, it is still a personal name. You can meet plenty of wonderful people named Bridget. In fact, I named my new printer Bridget because she's also in modern times considered to be a patron um, goddess of poets. So I thought, you know, it wouldn't help to have her help me out with anything I'm doing in that creative realm. She's often represented as a smith as well. And then there's the poet aspect that I just mentioned with my printer. And then she is also often depicted as the keeper of an eternal flame. And she also has a strong associated association with healing water and with wells, which I'm going to talk a bit more about in a moment, um, as well as the spring and as well as this... Um, being seen as a representation of the nurturing forces of the agricultural world and the seasons in terms of 
spring being bringing back vitality and bringing back food security. There are a lot of different theories of how she became a saint. There actually is still some discussion over if Saint Brigid and the goddess Brigid are one and the same. Um, the evidence pretty heavily points to the fact that she was Christianized, likely because it was very difficult for the people of Ireland to convert to Christianity without bringing this goddess with them, without bringing this... Um, I'm sure there was a lot of anxiety over leaving the what we call the old ways behind as people were practicing them for a reason. They believed that if they interacted with these supernatural beings and that if they conducted these rites, they would find some sense of control over their environment and they would find some sense of security with in terms of the growing season, in terms of their family's health, in terms of their own health, in terms of their survival. So switching to a completely different faith for most regions took several generations. And it seems that Ireland has this really unique history with Christianization and that it is really pagan. <laughs> there are so many pagan elements to Irish Catholicism. It's credited with being a bloodless conversion in Ireland, um, thanks to St. Patrick. At some point, maybe I'll share some thoughts on that because we don't really know if that's true. I mean, he was the one who told us that. He also told us about, like, I don't know what happened. God just, like, killed all the chiefs on the hill of Tara when I, I spared me. That just proves that he really loves me. I don't know what happened. The other guys, God just split their heads open. I mean, so, like, things like that make me kind of be like, really? Like, I mean, like, nobody else thought there could be another option here, like another interpretation like you're just believing this guy okay all right well you guys are gonna go with it i have questions though i have questions well we'll leave it at that i have questions but other than saint patrick's somewhat grandiose writing um there was there are a lot of wonderful pagan elements that you can see surviving in irish catholicism and to the to the point and that St. Bridget is considered, like, the patron saint of Ireland, or at least the patron female saint. She officially became a saint in the 5th century and was given the incredibly noble title Mary of the Gales. So I do see some people, and I myself have made this mistake in the past, using the term Gaelic and Celtic interchangeably. And it's kind of like square and rectangle, where sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. Like, a square can be a rectangle, but a rectangle can't be a square, I think. I don't math, but that's what I'm remembering from, like, my childhood days. However, um, Gales, the Gales refer to the places where they speak the Gaelic languages, which now is Scotland and Ireland. There's Irish Gaelic, also known just as Irish in Ireland, and then there's Gaelic, or... Scots Gaelic in Scotland. Thankfully, these ancient, ancient languages are still alive today. They are under a lot of threats 
Um, the populations that would have grown up speaking them as their first language are fading fast, and um, but they still still exist in in pockets. Um, in Ireland, these places are considered Gaeltachts. Um, they are given certain protections and provisions by the government to try to save and safeguard and encourage the indigenous language of the, the country to stay alive. Because with that language comes many customs and aspects of the culture that modernity is slowly chipping away um, at and, and taking away from the culture of these people. So that's a little bit of an aside, but when we're referring to the Gaels, we're referring to these Gaelic-speaking parts of the world. So Bridget was given the title Mary of the Gaels, as in Mary, G Jesus's mother. So this is an incredibly high honor. In Christianity, Mary is the only woman venerated to such an amazing status as she was the virgin mother of Jesus. So to have Bridget be given almost equal status, at least regionally, is pretty phenomenal. Continuing her association with nurturing and being like a mother-like deity, there are some Christian folk tales that tell the story of St. Bridget being the foster mother to Jesus and being his wet nurse. And so she is credited with having this incredibly high status at, because she was a surrogate mother to their God. So I think that that speaks a lot to the sway that the original pre-Christian goddess must have had over the people because they did not want to give her up and it was obviously a lot easier for perhaps the missionaries and the first uh, religious institutions, the first churches that were being built in Ireland to find a way to incorporate her rather than to try to villainize her. Sadly, many of the old gods and goddesses were vilified and there is a trend of a lot of the old goddesses being ascribed the status of witchhood by the early church. And when I'm saying the early church, I'm speaking in very, very broad terms. Um, there are a few instances where clergy people actually got together and decided this is what we think about things and this is going to be how we think going forward. Um, but most of the time it did vary by region. And um, and it was often sadly very militarized and weaponized. But again, that's I apologize. There's a lot of tangents today. I'm going to try to rein it back in to be a little bit more about St. Bridget and the goddess Bridget and Imbolc. But all these little asides are hopefully tributaries contributing to the stream of my somewhat stream of consciousness sharing of this knowledge. Um, I hope you find it fruitful and enriching. And again, I'm always striving to provide more context 
And uh, I hope I'm achieving my goal of, of speaking to my audience and explaining things and defining things instead of just assuming that people will know and understand a concept just because I do and just because I'm used to talking to people who do. So let me know how I'm doing. My goal as ever is to make this information as accessible intellectually as possible. Other than the potentiality of Bridget being a proto-Indo-European goddess, hence very, very old, we have some archaeological evidence that may support at least an indigenous Irish celebration or marking of this time of year. Portal tombs are, and tombs in general in Ireland, mound tombs, um, usually date back to the Neolithic era and were a form of honoring the dead. And so they would build these stone-enforced structures that sometimes just remained stone, and then the deceased would be placed under them, like the Pool Nebron Dolmen in um, the Burren in County Clare. But then there are those that have been quasi-reconstructed, like Newgrange, which is um, in the Boyne Valley. There are several passage tombs uh, or burial mounds in, in that area. One of them is the Mound of Hostages on the Hill of Tara. And the Hill of Tara is a very significant site in Ireland. It is not too far outside of modern Dublin. And it is just, as the name says, a little hill. Well, a hill, but I, I, would, I come from the mountains. I consider it a little hill. And when you stand upon it, you can have a good line of sight of the territory all surrounding you. And there are many Irish myths and legends that take place on the Hill of Tara. There is a very phallic-like stone there known as the Stone of Destiny um, that is involved in many legends about kingmaking. Uh, and so it was allegedly a place that the kings and leaders and chieftains of Ireland would gather to make decisions and to transfer leadership and to solve disputes and so forth. So it's a very culturally and historically significant place in Ireland that thankfully that was recognized quite a while ago and these archaeological sites were preserved. And the Mound of the Hostages has an entrance that aligns with the sunrise at Imbolc. It also aligns with the sunrise at Samhain. So I find that really fascinating. Some scholars have postulated that that could just be a coincidence. Um, it seems a pretty heavy coincidence if it is one. We also have tombs such as Newgrange that aligns with Dawn on the Winter Solstice and um, other tombs that well, apparently, like the Mound of the Hostages that align with either sunrise or sunset for Samhain. 
that said, historian Ronald Hutton was looking at a survey of surviving portal tombs, and it does seem like having intentional alignment with solstices and equinoxes is more the exception than the rule. However, I remind you that in bulk and so on are not solstices or equinoxes. I have the impression that solstices and equinoxes were much more significant to the Romans and uh, to Roman paganism and their, their spirituality and how they viewed the world uh, than they were necessarily to um, the Gales. But of course, the Roman Empire had a massive influence on the indigenous peoples of Europe. And we can see a lot of the origins of these agricultural holidays either being influenced by Roman customs or occurring in tandem with when the Romans were also marking these different significant points of the year, probably for many of the same reasons. And a holiday I would like to delve into in another episode occurred similar at a similar timing to Imbolc, and that would be Februa or Lupercalia. So some have also theorized that perhaps Imbolc, as we know it, has some echoes of those customs. But again, we also have counter evidence such as the potential of these tombs being in some form of alignment and with Bridget herself obviously being a ancient figure. Um, although that is not to say that Bridget was always associated with Imbolc. But we, we've got, this is why you have to be such a detective when you're sifting through all of this information. And this is why I say I, be a little wary of people who say, oh no, this is all fact. It's not necessarily settled fact. It's just, we're, we're trying to paint a picture, but we don't have all the paint. Um, so we've got a rough image of what was going on. Um, and this is what we think think was happening. This is where we think this holiday came from and why. That said, that is speaking from a strictly academic and historic standpoint. Um, if you're a member of the Wiccan faith or if you are observing Imbolc as part of your faith, then I think it's very important to have this historical understanding and this folkloric understanding and to know how nebulous some of this stuff that's passed on but as fact by certain people actually is but by no means should you then choose to interpret your connection with the holiday and your spirituality in this time of year is equally nebulous it, the two don't have to flow interchangeably um, everything is always shifting and perspectives are always changing and like I said at the start of this episode, nothing's ever stagnant until it's written down. And that's just because it's written down and it's recorded and that oral history was captured in a moment of time. So that's that's the other thing is we're also dealing with essentially snapshots and trying to piece together a whole that we'll never be able to do. Because like I said, too, and customs vary by era 
by location, by household. Um, but by all means, if you have your own in-bulk customs, and if I'm saying anything that's making you feel a little uncomfortable because you're choosing to put more faith in working with the goddess Brigid or in honoring this time of year with the ways that are very much more accepted by the neo-pagan community, then by all means do. Feel free to assign whatever meaning you need to assign or feel moved to assign to these things. Um, I'm just here to share... I was going to say what we know, but it seems like more of it's what we don't. And that's like just how history works, right? I mean, most archaeologists will tell you that most of what they have to work with is trash. Like, literally. For whatever reason, most of what survived, barring incidents like Pompeii, where there was this tragedy that also caused them, had a preserving effect on, like, an entire city. They're digging through ancient trash, like shards of pottery and things that were never intended to survive. So it's like we have people's refuse, and then we have the elaborate tombs, if they hadn't been raided by grave robbers. Um, we've got, like, these extremes, and then just the happenstances of bodies that survived, etc. Jewelry that fell off by the fireplace in Hadrian's wall and was never found, and archaeologists found it a thousand years later. You know, things like that. And um, I don't know why I'm saying all of this, other than to try to help remind everyone of that of how happenstance a lot of the information is that we have when it goes beyond the historical record and by beyond the historical record i mean it wasn't written down thankfully after the trend more or less set by the brothers grim in the middle of the 1800s, uh, there was this big push to collect folktales. So from then onward to varying degrees, we have people who set out intentionally to record what they saw as um, being under threat or being lost. Uh, and so they set out to record these folktales of place. Uh, Fiona Marion McNeil was one whose work I really admire. She's a Scottish folklorist. And if you want to delve into more of, I don't know if nitty gritty, because it's not very gritty. If you want to delve more into the actual folk customs and, and where they came from and how we understand them, then please do feel free to go to my website and check out my in-bulk recording um, that does get way more into the details than I'm getting in this episode because this is meant to paint a broad picture using the palette that's missing most of the paint. I am not a good salesperson. I should not be my own manager. In all seriousness, St. Bridget is associated with many magical or healing wells. One survey said that there were around 15 wells associated with her. But the most well-known is one in Liscanor, or Liscanor, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, in County Clare. It is considered one of the oldest wells, healing wells, in Ireland. Um, the water itself is said to have healing properties, and 
It is not far from the Cliffs of Mohair, which if you know Ireland at all, or if you're ever going to Ireland or have been to Ireland, that's usually one of the big tourist hotspots because it is absolutely spectacular. These The cliffs rise at least 700 feet out of the sea, and you're just looking out of the Atlantic toward nothing, toward the vastness of the ocean. It's And the wind is ripping through your hair, and I've been there twice, and it's an incredibly soul-stirring experience, and I definitely encourage you to go if you haven't ever had the chance. But each time, I haven't been able to pass up the opportunity to visit St. Bridget's Well there. And it surprised me the first time I went, because I didn't know what to expect, that uh, the well itself is actually obviously part of a stream, but it is encased in a, a grotto or a stone structure. And people come there and they bring pieces of clothing or something dear to an alien loved one, or they bring the person's photograph. They bring something of offering, something that holds like a piece of that person to leave for her to try to encourage her to use her healing powers and her healing magic to help that person. And I haven't seen a whole bunch of documentation referring to the grotto as what it is, but it's it's a shrine. It really is a shrine to St. Bridget where people are leaving these really heartfelt offerings. When I visited in, I believe it was 2016, my aunt at the time was very sick from cancer. And I remember I brought a photo of her and I think a strand of thread from a scarf that I had that was one of our clan's tartans. I know that's Scotland, but it, it's there's a strong maternal link to Scotland in my family and this was my maternal aunt. And since I really, really wanted to help her get better and I didn't have something more immediate of her and I, I really wanted to make sure Bridget could find my aunt, I pricked my own finger and I pressed some of my blood onto the piece of paper because I thought, hey, we share a lot of the same DNA, baby, this will help. And I brought it with me and I placed it inside the grotto there and I said a prayer asking for Bridget to please help heal my aunt. Sadly, she ended up passing at a very young age, just a few months after that, and... I don't know, it was a, a moment um, a moment of reckoning to understand like why so many of us are moved in our spirituality to ask for a supernatural force to intercede because we really don't want the outcome that's coming and we're doing what we can in our little sphere, our little realm of control, so that we can at least walk away saying, well, I tried. I didn't know if it would work, but I tried. I did what I could. Because when someone's ill, it's so heartbreaking that there's very little you can actually do. And that's why going to her well in general is, you know, if you are planning a trip, give yourself some emotional space. Because if you do look around at all at the little mementos and the trinkets there, 
it's hard. It's it's difficult to let in that these are all people who are likely ailing and in need of healing and their loved ones are leaving offerings there praying for healing for these people. It's very, very moving. At some of these holy wells, it is a tradition to then leave your offering and ask for what you want and then to walk sunwise around it. And that is to walk in the same direction as the sun. And this is an incredibly ancient practice. At Imbolc, the sun is showing its first signs of waxing. It is showing its first inklings of power. We, we are assured that the spring is indeed coming. The days are getting longer. So to walk sunwise is to move with that energy, to bid the sun to continue this cycle, to keep coming back, especially in these northern reaches such as Ireland and the Scottish Highlands, where the winters are indeed so very harsh. So this overview has talked about a lot in a very, very broad sense. And again, there are a great deal of documented customs that um, you can learn about from other sources. But if you like my style, of course, as I mentioned, you can go to my website and check out my seasonal offering. But most of them revolve around the theme of welcoming Bridget, either the goddess or the saint, into your home the evening before the 1st of February, as we know it now, and asking her to come in, inviting her in. So it's, in, in a way, it is asking for spring to enter your life, spring to enter your home, for the promise of warmth, for the promise of all of the nurturing qualities of spring and all of that nourishment to come into your life. It's also considered to be a time of divination, so trying to see what the future holds, and also a lot of organization and spring cleaning. No surprise there. Uh, we still have that term, spring cleaning. So um, to begin to declutter and go through what you've accumulated in the cold days when you just didn't really feel like moving that much. That said, in most parts of the Northern Hemisphere, the beginning of February is still really cold. Sometimes it's the coldest month of the year, depending on where you live. So again, that's why I had that little aside earlier about whatever your personal practices are, you you do you. Like, you don't have to, just because we know that there were people in Ireland who did things a certain way doesn't mean you have to do them that way, too. Again, these customs varied from person to person and household to household. So do what feels right for you. But in the general sense, Imbolc was the promise of food security. It was the first stirrings of spring. Often people look at snowdrops, this beautiful bulb that um, is so named because it can actually grow and push through the soil and bloom amidst the snow, which is not super common for most flowers and not even super common for most bulbs. Um, it is about connecting with your sources of nourishment and sustenance, such as milk and all that that symbolizes. It is a time for potentially connecting with Bridget, however you view her, um, asking for her gifts of healing. I didn't even get into her identity as a smith 
and as a poet, but I see them all as linked because those are all generative qualities. They're all, she's a maker. She is working with words or working with metals uh, or working with the healing arts to bring things into fruition. It's a time to start thinking about setting perhaps some goals. It's it's marking the beginning of the sewing season. So maybe it's time to take some of those goals you've been ruminating about over the winter and seeing if you can take some small steps into bringing them into fruition as well. So there are many different layers to this holiday and several different ways you could interpret it. But those are the overarching themes that have been my takeaway from my research. And in our traditional American society, we don't really have a lot. I mean, we have Valentine's Day, but other than that, we don't have a lot going on between Christmas and Easter. So it's really fun to stay connected. And in fact, it's very grounding to stay more connected with the changing seasons in the more nuanced way that walking the wheel of the year can provide by not only marking the solstices and equinoxes but the midway points as well that means there's a total of eight i'll call them holidays that you can observe throughout the the year and they don't all have to be flashy they don't all have to be big parties i observe in bulk and i do it in a very very quiet way even just listening to this episode in growing your awareness of this holiday and these customs and what they represent um, can be counted as a form of observation so know that (laughs) know that in the busy world of the modern landscape that we find ourselves in there are room for as many different interpretations of this holiday and the customs as there are different types of people. Thank you, as always, so very much for listening. It has been a privilege to have you join me. I hope you learned something useful. And again, if you're interested, my inbox offering is at my website under the offering section. Uh, feel free to check it out. It will only be available seasonally. So as we move into Ostara, it will go away. I mean, it's digital, so it doesn't ever really go away. But you know what I mean. (laughs) So until next time, may your hearth be warm and your heart be full. Mm -hmm.